So I'm kind of excited that, uh, that I get to, to preach on this tonight, one of my favorite topics in the Bible to talk about what it is to be a mature Christian and what is a mature church. And um, it is true that the, the master's uh, thesis is kind of an academic thing, a lot of Greek exegesis and stuff. I'm not going to talk about that tonight, so this is not exactly the same. But it's still, it's a topic that I really care about and that I like, and I'm really happy to be able to talk about this passage that I know pretty well. Um, so, um, this passage uh, is uh, the continuation, of course, of what Pastor Mike uh, preached about last week. And in fact, I'm going to overlap a bit with, uh, with Mike's uh, sermon from last week because it's important to have what he talked about last week in mind as we move into the main core of the passage that we'll be talking about tonight. So this passage tells us that we are all to be doing ministry. We are all to be doing ministry for the purpose of building up the church. And then it goes on to describe the goal that it is that we are working toward. And so, so let's take a look at this passage together. I'm actually going to uh, go back all the way to, uh, to verse 7 to start us off with here in Ephesians chapter 4. And it says this, it says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So this first section is uh, overlapping with uh, what Mike talked about last week, as I mentioned. And Mike told us last week that uh, what is being pictured here is something that was common in the ancient world, which is that when a ruler went out uh, on, a, uh, on, a, on a military campaign and was victorious, then he would come back home, and as he came back home, he would bring back these captives, and he would give gifts from the, uh, the pillaging of the enemies, that, and he would give gifts to his people. And that's what the Bible is picturing here that Jesus is doing. Um, it says that he gave gifts to his people as he took many captives when he ascended on high. That is, Jesus came down to earth and won a great victory over sin and death on the cross. And then after he had won that victory, as he returned home to heaven, he gave gifts to uh, his people. And, um, and in, in verse 7, of course, those gifts are referred to as grace. Grace has been given to each of us. And those are the gifts of ministry that uh, have been given to each one of us, as it says there in verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then in verse 11, it continues this discussion of the gifts. It says, uh, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Um, so that was one of the, the big points that, uh, that Mike made last week was that uh, the gifts were given so that we could all do our work to, uh, in the church and that, uh, and that the, these people, these teaching gifts here, were given especially so that they, the people of God could be equipped so that the people of God could each do the work. 
And the idea here in this, uh, this section of what lists off the pastors and evangelists and apostles and prophets is that some of the gifts that God gave were these kind of equipping gifts. And the people with these gifts were given to the church to equip the rest of the people to do the work. Now, the apostles and prophets, uh, as Mike talked about last week, are not with us now in the same way that they were back in those days. Um, but they are, are, their ministry continues today in the fact that they are the ones who wrote the New Testament books of the Bible. And so we have the writings of the apostles and prophets. And so we are still benefiting from those gifts that God gave to us through them in the training of his people. And we are equipped by reading the works of the apostles and the prophets. And then the others, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, are still at work in the church today. And they are tasked with teaching the Bible in a way that equips people to do works of service or to do works of ministry. And why do we need people to be doing works of ministry? Well, the text tells us it's to, uh, so that the church of God may be built up. But why should we care about the building up of the church? I mean, the church is already here. What, what's, what's, what do we, why are we interested in building up the church? Well, that's the rest of the passage. What does it mean to build up the church? Why does the church need to be built up? So this passage is going to give us a bit of a picture of a mature church and what it is that we uh, are striving for, and that is a church ready to serve God in the world. So moving on to the passage, verse 12. It says, it says that we all do our works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So before we uh, really look at the description there more, I want to say a little bit about this idea of building up that is uh, stated here. This idea of building up or growth of the church is really a big theme in this uh, section of the Bible here. Um, right here in just these few verses, it talks about building up twice, it talks about growing twice, and it uses the words attain, become, and reach. And all of those words together really get to this idea that the church should not be stagnant, but should be making progress. So a church uh, that is made up of a group of people, whether it's a small group or a large group, if it stays the same and no new people are added to the church and the people who are in the church are not making progress toward righteousness, that is a failing church. Even if the church budget is really healthy, even if the church has really good music and serves really good coffee and has really beautiful services, a church without growth is a failure. Churches are meant to be in a process of growth and building up. They are to be striving to attain the goal and reaching for the next stage of development. 
And in this passage, the growth comes in, in two forms, growth in numbers and growth in spiritual maturity. And the numbers idea is clearly shown here from the fact that one of the gifts God has given to help the church grow is evangelists. And evangelists, of course, when they are doing their work, notice they are part of the group that is equipping the saints to do the work. So the evangelists are training up the people so that the gospel message is going out and new people who are not yet followers of Jesus are hearing the message of Jesus and are coming to put their faith in him so that new people will be uh, experiencing salvation and new people will be added to the church. So a church that is being built up and growing is a church in which new people are being baptized. It's a church in which people who used to go to church but quit a long time ago are coming back to church. It's a church that is growing in numbers. That's a mature church. But the main focus of the passage really, though, is not on that numerical growth. It is on the other aspects of the growth of the church is what mostly is being talked about here in Ephesians. And there's three big ideas here in this, in this verse, in verse 13, that describe the goal First one is that uh, we are striving toward unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity. So um, unity comes in, in two parts. Um, one is the sense of brotherhood and teamwork and unity of purpose that we all have as Christians. We as Christians are a family. We care about one another. We care for one another. We um, are a unified group. We celebrate together. We mourn together. In another place, the Bible encourages Christians to make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So that is one part of the unity that we have as believers is that we just have a connection all of us together are connected into one big family, one big organization. And the other sense of unity is the unity of doctrinal agreement, unity of believing the same things. We are unified in the sense that we believe uh, the same truths about God and about ourselves and about the world around us. And the phrase here, Unity in the faith and knowledge implies that the main idea in, is this second sense of unity that he's talking about here in Ephesians. So, um, of course, there's a lot of overlap between the two. It's that unity of knowledge and that unity of faith that gives us that bond together and makes us uh, a big family together. But, but the main idea here is that unity of uh, being of one spirit and one mind. So that unity that we're talking about here of unity of beliefs, there's an ancient saying that summarizes it well. It says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So that is a summary of the kind of attitude that we should have uh, about our knowledge of God and of the Bible. All of us should have unity and in this phrase, uh, unity means unanimous agreement. We are all unified in 
uh, believing the same thing about all of the essentials, right? And that is a mark of a, of a mature church or of a mature Christian. Uh, they know and understand the essentials of the gospel and the truth about God. A church that does not have unity with us on the essentials is not a mature church. A Christian who does not have unity with us on essentials is not yet a mature Christian because these things are essential truths. Disagreement with them is proof of, or at least a need for, growth. And then the other part of the saying is, in non-essentials, liberty. So that means that when it comes to questions about God and the gospel and, and, and the Bible and these other things that are not essentials, we should be willing to allow one another to disagree, to have the liberty to hold other opinions without thinking any less of them. So I want to clarify this by giving a couple of examples. One example of a non-essential teaching would be that Clearwater Church's official position is that the authoritative leadership of the church, the pastors and the elders, uh, have to be men in our church. Um, we believe that that's the biblical teaching, is that uh, men have been given that role of being the pastor or, and of being elders in the church. So women can serve in many roles at Clearwater. They can be in leadership roles. They can do some teaching, but they can't be pastors or elders. But we do not consider this to be an essential doctrine. Many other churches have looked at the biblical evidence and have judged it differently than we have. And, uh, and we are happy to uh, disagree with them about that. And, and, uh, and, and they are not uh, in, they are not less, lesser Christians because they have a different view than we do. And in fact, you can even become a member of Clearwater Church and disagree on this particular issue. You see, um, this church policy is not part of the statement of faith that members sign when they officially join the church. Um, another example of a non-essential teaching would be what I said earlier about the apostles and the prophets. And I mentioned that we don't believe that there are apostles and the prophets who are working in the church today, but it's the ancient apostles and prophets whose writings we have that are benefiting us today. Um, but many churches think that there are both apostles and prophets active in the world today. And while we disagree, we grant liberty to those who believe differently than we do. As long as we have unified agreement on the essentials, it's okay if we disagree about the non-essentials. And of course, the last phrase of that ancient saying is also important, in all things charity. And charity here doesn't mean giving to the poor, it means love. In all things, love. If we have disagreements about non-essentials and even have vigorous debates about some of those issues, but these disagreements and debates should never result in a loss of love for those with whom we have agreement on the essentials. 
And of course, the key to actually making this kind of approach practical is identifying, well, what's essential and what's not essential, right? Because some people just want to say, okay, well, anything we disagree about, then it's not essential. Um, but that's not the way it works. Um, see, we at Clearwater here have a, uh, a way that really kind of gets down to the, the details on this in that we have a confession of faith that all of our members are required to sign. And it serves as a guideline to us as to what is essential. And it's pretty short. It's only six bullet points, and it takes up about one-third of a page or so. And that is uh, what we consider to be uh, the truly essential teachings of the church. And, um, of course, something that short is it's got some very particularly worded phrases in there that pack a lot of meaning to it. But still, it's a, it's a brief statement, and it is really just the essentials. And then we also have a much longer statement of faith that our pastors and elders uh, have agreed to, and it lets people know in much more detail what some of our positions are on uh, some of the non-essential issues. And that one, it has 13 sections, and it's four pages long. Um, so and you can find that one on our website. But coming back to Ephesians... It says a part of the maturity that we are building toward as a church is unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. See, mature churches are united in their beliefs about the Son of God. And I believe that Clearwater Church is actually doing pretty well in this particular area. First of all, we are a church that is made up of people who come from quite a variety of different church backgrounds and denominational backgrounds. Um, we have Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, many other uh, groups uh, of people who have come to Clearwater Church, and we don't agree on every little detail of the faith, but we have unity in the essentials. Um, we also have good relationships with specific congregations that are different than us here in Anchorage where that we have good, solid doctrinal unity with. Changepoint Church sponsored Clearwater in the early days of the church plant. Um, Radiant Church, University Baptist Church are places where we have not only rented space, but we've also partnered with them in uh, financial ways and also in uh, joint services together and things like that. Um, we are currently sharing our building here in Spinard with two other churches. Uh, Set Free Church and Response Church are both uh, meeting here, and we have great relationships with those two churches. Uh, Pastor Mike and I were both pastors at other churches before we came here. Uh, Mike here in Anchorage, me out in the valley. Um, all of these churches have unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And I'd have no problem signing the doctrinal statements of any of these churches. And I would anticipate that the lead, their leaders would have no problem signing our doctrinal statement. We have unity in the faith. In essentials, we are in agreement. We know the truth about God. Mature churches have unity in essential doctrines. And that's an exciting thing because when we know that we have that unity, it means we are part of something much larger than ourselves. Not only are we part of Clearwater Church, which is much larger than each individual person here, but Clearwater Church is part of a much bigger body of Christ here in Anchorage 
in Alaska, in our country, and all over the world, there are millions of believers who are unified with us in the faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So when we gather together for worship, we are part of a worldwide chorus worshiping the same God with the same beliefs that we have. The next phrase in Ephesians here is that the church will be built up until we, quote, become mature. And uh, this is a kind of a summary statement that states very briefly a big idea without explaining all the details. And this, uh, this particular phrase here is one that I spent quite a bit of time uh, deciphering in uh, the original Greek language here. But, but the big idea is that to become mature in this sense that verse is referring to here is to reach the intended goal for which something was created. It's to become what it was meant to be, to become mature, or some translations uh, put it as to become perfect. Something that is mature is something that has reached the end for which it was designed. It is the perfect example of what it is supposed to be. Um, the idea here is that the church will be built up until it reaches the complete, perfect end that God intended the church to become. And the lesson here, again, is the reality and essential importance of progress and growth to become what we were meant to be. There is a state of maturity or perfection that we are moving toward. We are not just sitting stagnant and we are not just uh, aimlessly wandering. We are growing toward complete maturity as the people of God. And then the last phrase, phrase in this verse brings up again the concept that we've chosen as the title for our series for the whole of Ephesians, which is a people full of God. And here is it is phrased as uh, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. A mature church is a church that is full of Jesus. Jesus is living in them. His love is working in them. Jesus is motivating their lives. He is ruling their hearts. The things that the church and the people of the church do are the things that Jesus motivates them to do. They are a people full of God. Paul described this in his own life in the book of Galatians. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a life full of God. And that is uh, the, that idea that it's not me that's ruling my own life. It's not me that's making all the decisions in my own life. God is guiding me. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Another way of putting this idea is that a church is a people full of God is the description that we see several times in the Bible where we see it as the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. They are full of God. He is living in us. He is living through us. 
We are doing his work. We are his hands and feet in the world. And the goal is that we will have the full measure of the fullness of God. We will be completely full of God. Are we there yet? Are we the mature church that has reached its full potential and is where it was meant to be? Are we completely full to the whole measure of God? No. We are a church in progress. We are a people in progress. We are striving to be what we were meant to be. And we are building up one another towards that goal. And verse 14 describes more of what this maturity will look like. It says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. So mature Christians and a mature church are not obsessed with the latest Christian fad teaching. Yes, they might hear a new teaching that they find very helpful in understanding some part of God or of the Christian life, and they might be very excited about that new teaching, but mature Christians recognize that the main thing is the main thing. And this new exciting thing that has just come along is not the main thing. Um, while uh, the main thing teaches us to put the emphasis on the aspects of biblical teaching that are the most important. And these new things that come along might, uh, might redirect emphasis onto something that's very helpful to us, very meaningful to us, but it doesn't, we don't get carried away with it. We don't get obsessed with it. We are not tossed back and forth by the waves. Now I'm into this aspect of the Christian life. Now I'm into that aspect of the Christian life. We are steady on the main things. We don't get carried away by the waves and winds of teaching. Sometimes those new teachings that we hear are, are teaching truth, and they're only dangerous in that they might cause us to uh, put too much emphasis where it doesn't belong. But this verse also talks about teachers who use cunning and craftiness and deceitful scheming to lead people astray. Some years after he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul met in person with some of the leaders of this church, and he gave them this warning, which was recorded for us in the book of Acts. Paul was talking to these church leaders. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. So there are some who claim to be Christian teachers who are not. They are self-motivated. And as the Bible says in another place, they think that the faith is a means to financial gain. Or they think that they want power and influence over people, and so they seek to preach in order to get that. Or they're just deceived. There have been a lot of false teachers throughout the history of the world. 
We can read about them in the Old Testament and the stories of the false prophets that were opposing the prophets of God in the days of Israel. And we can read about it in the New Testament where there's warnings like this one and many others throughout the New Testament where there are people who are opposed to the truth. And there's been more false teachers since then. Throughout the history of the world, there have always been people who have been opposed